the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What did Jesus do with all the disciples? He would find them in their work environment, and he would say, come, follow me. But there came that moment when they had to leave something behind to follow him. They were staring in the face exactly what he was calling them to do. Choice is important. Choice matters to God. We are free moral agents created in his image. See, if you and I don't have a choice, there is no good or bad. There could be no praise for good nor consequence for bad. I'm just doing what I'm wired to do. If anyone is to blame, it's the one who did the wiring. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had prepared the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan, the land promised to them. The people had complained on the journey, and Miriam, Moses' sister, even got struck with leprosy when she questioned God's authority. Now the children of Israel are ready to move into the land. They decided to send spies into the land to scout out what was in store for them in the land of Canaan. We continue with Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 13, verse 22, as the spies share what they discovered about the land. Verse 22 starts their journey bit by bit. And they ascended by the south, so they come up through the desert, that's the word Negev again, and they came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, And Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. The first major stop in the southern hills of Judea, and their first major shock was the city of Hebron. They travel up. It's right off the main strip. And they go there, and they stop in Hebron, and they see these three dudes, three giants who live in this city. That's their first major city they visit. And already, they're a little intimidated. They're like, we're going to have to fight against giants? Egypt didn't have any of those. This is a bit of a shock for them. The children of Anak are the Anakim. They are giants. Uh, Joshua 15, 13 tells us that the city of Hebron was originally called Kirjath Arba, or the city of Arba. Arba was the forefather of the Anakim, a people of giants. So the spies were immediately confronted with their daunting task. Right over the border, as soon as they go in, There are giants we're going to have to fight. So the question is, would they still trust God with those giants? It mentions here, now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Zoan was the residence of the Pharaoh during Moses' days. Therefore, Moses likely grew up there. So that's why he makes this reference here. He goes, now, Hebron's not that ancient. He goes, it's only as old as Zoan. It was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. They saw these giants there, but Moses makes his little note. Yeah, but it ain't that big a deal. You know, that's kind of what that note is there. It's Moses' little note to say there was no reason to be intimidated by that, but they were. Now, while they're there in Hebron, they went down and they came into the brook of Eshkol. The word there, brook, can also mean valley. And that's why we usually call it the Valley of Eshkol. And they cut down from there a branch 
with one cluster of grapes. The word Eshkol means valley of grapes. Um, and it was named that later on because of the grapes. They cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes and they carried it between two of them upon a staff. That's how juicy and big these grapes were. I mean, they, had, they tied the cluster to a, a staff and they were carrying it like this between them and, and just, you know, I mean, that was, that's some good stuff. I don't know about you, but that makes me hungry. I'm, I'm ready to finish the sermon. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. And uh, you can get many of those things still over in Israel. Verse 24, the place was called the Brook of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes, which the children of Israel cut down from there. So that's where it got its name from. So they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. So they went out and they searched it out and they brought back the evidence of the land being good. So did they return filled with faith like they were supposed to? Well, some did. Let's see verse 26, what the spies reported. Verse 26 says, And they went and they came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And they brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, Moses, and said, We came into the land whither you sent us, and surely or certainly indeed, just as God said, It flows with milk and honey, and this is the evidence of it. This is the fruit of it. You know, the word there flows means to gush, to overflow. You know, and milk and honey, it doesn't mean that. I remember when I went to uh, Israel, I went to all my kids, and I said, so what do you want me to bring back from Israel? And Ethan wanted me to bring back milk and honey. And I I, I said, I I don't think I bring back milk. It's probably going to spoil. But I did bring him back some date honey. So he got some honey. But... Didn't like it, but I brought it back. But the idea of milk and honey is not literal, even though they do have honey there. It's just a Hebrew phrase that means there's an abundance of sustenance. It truly is a land. It surely is indeed a land that has an overabundance of sustenance. And here's the proof right here. So far, so good, right? The report, they come back, God, God was true. He said it was a land that had an abundance of sustenance, and it does. And here's the proof of it. Well, verse 28. Nevertheless, despite God's promise proving true, there is a problem, Moses. Nevertheless, three things. The people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great, very high. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Three problems. They are not a weak people. They are strong. The word there means intense, fierce, harsh. They are militarily mighty and ready to fight. And not only that, but they don't dwell in tents. They live and dwell in fortified, the word actually means impregnable cities. And their walls are high, man. And then lastly, there's giants. There are giants, the children of Anak. They live there. They are there. We saw them with our own eyes. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, well, but there has to be some weak point we can get a foothold, right? Somewhere we can attack and it's easier, isn't there? Nope, verse 29. The Amalekites, they dwell in the land of the south. So if we go up this way, we've got to fight them. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, they dwell right in the middle where all the hilly, hill country is. Well, we'll come in on the east or maybe we'll attack from the sea. Nope, it says the Canaanites, they dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. There is no weak spot. There is no pincer point where we can get in and have a beachhead. You know, there is no easy way to do this. A good question for us to ask is, did God ever tell them there would be an easy entrance or that there wouldn't be walled cities or that they wouldn't face giants? 
No. In fact, God did the exact opposite. In Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8, in his promises to Israel, there's three promises. In 6, 6, he says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. In 6, 7, he says, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to have a relationship with you. But then in 6, 8, he says this, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for an inheritance. He, he, meant, he goes down and he lists all the tribes they're going to have to drive out. There's no mention of it being easy. And then God reiterates it in Exodus 34, verses 10 and 11. God says this. He says to them, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, not your great military prowess. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe thou that which I command you this day. Behold, I drive out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Hivite, and the Jebusites, every single one of these people that they mentioned here. God never said it'd be easy. In fact, he told them, he promised them, he would have to do the miraculous to give them the land. That it would take a miracle. Beating giants, fiercer armies, and walled cities. Sounds like that will take a miracle to me. So, as the people begin to hear this report and word begins to spread, yes, it has an abundance of sustenance, but man, we are outnumbered. They, they are fierce warriors. They've got walled cities. Well, how do we even lay siege to this stuff? And we're gonna have to fight against giants. As the people begin to murmur about that report, one of the other spies speaks up, verse 30, and says this, and Caleb stilled the people. The word there means to silence They're all murmuring and everything's spreading throughout and he silences them, quiet, before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. We know Joshua agreed with Caleb, but Caleb's doing the speaking here. He says, let us go up at once. No hesitation in obeying God. This stems from an absolute trust in God's promise. Caleb came back filled with faith, filled with a trust that God could do this. And he says, we are well able to overcome This is actually, in the the Hebrew, it's two of the same words repeated back to back for emphasis, well able to overcome. The phrase means to have what it takes to win. Basically what he says is, we have what it takes to win. We have what it takes to win. He's saying it twice for emphasis because the idea is, we can most assuredly do this. Let's go up now. Think about it up to this point. Every victory they've achieved had been a miracle. Leaving Egypt, the plagues. Escaping the Egyptian army, the parting of the Red Sea. Their water supply, everything you name. Every problem they had tackled, had any of them been solved because they were just better than their problem? None of them. Every single time God intervened miraculously, right? Why should it be different now? The impression of the language is that Caleb is actually quite convincing to the people. That his faith is influencing them to trust God. And if it ended here, I think they would have gone in but some of the other spies felt the need to counteract them. And you have to wonder if there was some fighting on the way back home from the promised land. Because in verse 31, it says, but he says this, the people are quiet and they seem to be buying into it. But the men that went up with him said, I almost can't even say it. We be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. I don't find it hard to say because I've never done that, but it's hard to read. Let's go at once we are well able to do this and they look around and go don't listen to this kook we are gonna fall on our face we cannot do this they are stronger than us our mission will fail 
it was a direct contradiction to Caleb's statement. But note why. They have greater military might than we do. They are stronger than us. That wasn't a false statement, but it didn't matter. (laughs) That's not the problem that their statement wasn't true. It was a true statement. They had a stronger military, but none of that mattered because Israel's military might wasn't the guarantee of victory. God's miraculous intervention was. Now, like I said earlier, I imagine these guys already had this argument on the way back from their reconnaissance mission. And they squash this call to faith with a clear, we can't win, it's impossible. And then they proceed to explain that God didn't tell the truth. Look at verse 32. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel. The phrase there, an evil report, is actually a bad translation. It means they slandered the land of Israel. They gave it a bad reputation. See, they colored the report in a way that would make the people think the land wasn't good like God said. And that's the exact opposite of faith. They were filled with self. See, they said to him, the land through which we have gone to search it, man, it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the exact opposite of a land that provides an abundance of sustenance. If the land is eating you, you're not eating it. So that's the exact opposite of their early report where they said, oh no, it's true, everything God said. This is a land that flows with milk and honey. Well, here they say, man, that milk and honey going to eat you. All the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. That is an exaggeration. They only saw three giants. Now, they may have seen more, but that didn't mean everybody was a giant. I'm sure there's more people that lived in Hebron than three giants. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come from the giants. It's like they couldn't say giant enough. Giant, 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 flee, you know? We were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and that's how they looked at us. They made us feel like crickets when we saw them, and that's how they viewed us. They weren't frightened of us at all. As you read through those two verses, doesn't that sound a bit like Satan's conversation with Eve in the garden? Did God really say not to eat of the fruit? Oh, God's actually been holding back on you. He can't be trusted. His word, actually, it's not even true. So similar, so similar. All the things that happen in the garden are present here. So the question is, who are you gonna trust? Your accuser or the lover of your soul? This ends the chapter. The story continues in chapter 14 and it's not pretty, but we're still left with that important question. Did Israel actually learn anything militarily in this mission that helped them fight the Canaanites? No, the majority of these leaders didn't take courage like Moses told them to. And they didn't return filled with faith like God wanted them to. So what purpose did the mission serve? Why allow the mission if God knew it would end up turning the hearts of the people from trusting him? Well, this brings up an important topic, the topic of free will. God allowed this mission because he doesn't ask us to blindly trust him. See, people say that all the time. God asks, I can't just take a leap of faith. No, you're right. God doesn't ask you to take a leap of faith. God asks you to stare right into the face of the facts and to trust him anyway. That's what he asks you to do. He asks you to look at all the doubt, all the obstacles, all the things that say, no, it can't be this way. And he says, trust me because I love you. It's that simple. He never asks us to take a leap of faith. He also doesn't come around and go, it's all gonna be great, just trust me. No, he says, I want you to see everything as it is. In reality, and now I'm inviting you to come follow me, right? What did Jesus do with all the disciples? 
he would find them in their work environment and he would say, come, follow me. Now, they did not know him before that. Many of them had followed him and listened to his teaching prior to that. But there came that moment when they had to leave something behind to follow him. They were staring in the face exactly what he was calling them to do. To follow him meant to leave behind the tax collector table. To follow him meant to leave behind the nets and the boats and all their career earnings. He asks us to stare full in the face exactly the impossible and to trust him. Why? Because our choice is important to God. I did some fascinating research this week. And if you ever want to have some fun, do some research on the modern philosophical views on free will. It's interesting because of all the brain work we can do now. They hook people up to diodes and things like that or whatever they're called. And, you know, things that monitor brain activity. And they, they, they try to figure out what comes first. You know, someone's decision-making process or the electrical things that are happening. And, and what many scientists have deciphered is that, well, these electrical impulses, they occur immediately as the choice is presented. So that must mean we actually don't have any free will. There is no soul. We're all just programmed computers. This has gone so far that in certain court cases, criminals of rape, murder, whatever, have said, I didn't have a choice. This is the way I am wired. It's my DNA and it can be proven. And they've gotten off because of it, because of the research of these scientists. In certain psychological and scientific communities, the idea of free will is a joke. They think it's absolutely absurd. There is no soul. There's no free will. You're just a machine. Stephen Hawking, I think, is the one who most recently was famous for saying, you know, because he's, he's going to die soon. And they, they said, what's going to happen when you die? He's like, I'm just like a computer that stops working. You just shut me off and you throw me on the trash heap. Well, doesn't that make you feel sad? Why should I feel sad? I'm just, I'm, I'm a computer. And, and it was just horrifying to hear him talk about that. So there was this one article I stumbled across that really made me chuckle. The title of the article was, Why There's No Free Will, But Why We Should All Pretend There Is. And here's why. And they quoted some research. And I want to read to you some of it. In 2002, two psychologists had a simple but brilliant idea. Instead of speculating about what might happen if people lost belief in their capacity to choose, they could run an experiment to actually find out. So Kathleen Vose, then at the University of Utah, and Jonathan Schuler of the University of Pittsburgh, asked one group of participants to read a passage arguing that free will was an illusion. And then another group to read a passage that was neutral on the topic. Then they subjected the members of each group to a variety of temptations and observed their behavior. Would differences in abstract philosophical beliefs influence people's decisions? The conclusion was yes, indeed. So not just lightly yes, but yes, oh yeah. When asked to take a math test with cheating made easy, the group primed to see free will as an illusion proved more likely to take an illicit peek at the answers. When given an opportunity to steal, in other words, to take more money than they were due from an envelope of $1 coins, those whose belief in free will had been undermined pilfered more. On a range of measures, Vose told me, she and Schuler found that people who are induced to believe less in free will are more likely to behave immorally. That sounds like something that might come from the enemy. Choice is important. Choice matters to God. We are free moral agents created in his image. See, if you and I don't have a choice, there is no good or bad. There's going to be no praise for good nor consequence for bad. I'm just doing what I'm wired to do. If anyone is to blame, it's the one who did the wiring. So choice must be real because God is to blame for nothing. Choice is important and God respects our choices, even though it means giving opportunity for evil to occur. And all of Israel needed to make their individual choice because the truth is, once they got inside the land, they would have done the same exact thing. 
Same exact thing, only with more loss of life. And then no ability to have children going forward like they did wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. So sadly, only a few people from an entire generation remained because they chose to trust God, highlighted by Joshua and Caleb. Now, we'll learn more about Joshua's faith later on in a different book. But when I read this, I don't know about you, I want to be like Caleb. Like I read that, I'm just like, that guy fires me up, you know? And and the cool part is, you know, when you read scripture, he's just always like this. Psalm 108, verse 13, we read, through our God, we shall do valiantly, for it is he who shall give us the victory, right? Man, that needs to be my battle song. When you face a problem, you look in the eye and go, you know what? Through my God, I'm gonna do valiantly because it is he who's treading down my enemies, not me. That needs to be the way we look at it, filled with faith. That doesn't mean we're not realists. We look and we stare that problem in the eye and go, God's gonna need to do a miracle. But we look forward to him doing so and we trust him. You wanna know something? I wanna leave you with this. Well, I'm gonna leave you with a song, but I wanna leave you with this thought about Caleb. Guess which land Caleb asked for when he went in 40 years later. Joshua came to him and said, Caleb, what land would you like? And he goes, give me Hebron. I want to take it to those three giants that I didn't get the opportunity to do 40 years ago because all these guys wouldn't trust God. Caleb was 80 years old at the time. All I can picture him is charging up that hill. Yeah, you know, just, you know, (laughs) ain't nothing stopping me. I waited 40 years to give it to you suckers and you're going to get it. And he took that city and it became his place, his place that he put his foot down on. He said, I've been believing God for this for 40 years and now I'm taking it. And that proves that God can take a dog and turn him into a conqueror. All he has to do is trust the Lord. So don't look at your capacity. Look at his capacity and march in confidently. Amen? What's your choice? You know, God made it clear he's given them the land. They aren't taking it, so the problems in the spies' report shouldn't have even been an issue. In the end, it came down to whether they would believe this, their report, or they would believe verse two, where God said, search the land which I'm giving unto the children of Israel. Joshua and Caleb believed verse two but the other 10 spies didn't. And they discouraged the hearts of the people of Israel to do the same. So how about you? As the worship team comes forward, I wanna read to you some lyrics from a song in 1994 called, Will You Worship? And they go like this. Deep in my soul is a tug of war. I'm struggling to know what this life is for. And I try so hard to stay in control, to hold back the tears, to not let go. And I don't know why. I hang on so long when I know the question you are asking me is, will you worship? Will you bow down before your Lord and King? Will you love me? Will you give me your heart, your everything? So right here and now, I make my choice. With all my love, I will answer you. I will worship. I will bow down before my Lord and King. I will love you. I will give you my heart, my everything. Let's make that our prayer. Let's stand. Lord, we often find ourselves in that same tug of war in our souls. We wanna hang on to stuff that we don't need to hang on to, but we feel like we need to. And you're calling us. Will you worship? Will you bow down? Will you love me? Will you give me your heart, your everything? And so right here and now, we make our choice. Whatever that thing is right now, or maybe it's just our lives where we're at right now. And we say to you, with all my love, Lord, I will worship, I will bow down before my Lord and King, you, Jesus, in your name.
Amen. God had many great blessings for the children of Israel, but their own sin and doubts caused them to miss out on the fullness of God's promises. God never said things would be easy, but He said everything would be worth it in the end. Let's take God at His word. There may be giants, there may be walled strongholds, but no weapon formed against us shall prosper when God is on our side. We must take hold of God's promises and trust Him to be all we need. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.